Let's uh, open our Bibles. If you've got your Bible or if you need one, there's one in the back of the church. Uh, We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We just started chapter 5 last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and a special welcome to those who may be joining us live online. We'd love to have you come. We've got lots of seating in a spacious room uh, for the worship of God. And a special, um, can we say, shout out to our members who are yet at home. We're thinking of George and Marion and Linda and, and many others. And we long to gather with you again here, and we pray that's the case soon. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll read the text and then we'll have a a pretty ponderous introduction before we study God's word together. We're beginning in verse 7 and I know that's the middle of a verse. So let me begin in verse 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or are away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. There is no greater mystery in nature, says John Howe, than the union between body and soul. When you think of the natural world, there's no greater mystery, says John Howe. And he continues... Let me give you the longer version of that very point. How your body and soul are intertwined. He says that a mind and a spirit should be so tied and linked with a clod of clay. That well, that what remains in a due temper, it cannot by any art or power free itself. It can by act of will move a hand or a foot or the whole body, but cannot move from it one inch. If it move hither and thither, or by a leap upward, John Howe's a Puritan, 400 years ago, so some of his verbs might, you might not recognize. He's talking about the body and soul. Uh, if it move, the body and soul hither or thither, or leap up, the body follows the soul. It cannot shake or throw it off. We cannot take ourselves out. By any allowable means, we cannot, nor by any at all, whether they be within human power, as long as this temperament lasts, this body lasts. While that remains, we cannot go. And if the body fails, we cannot stay. He continues, a wonderful thing. And I wonder, we no more wonder at our own make and frame in this respect. We do not, with reverent submission, Adore, discern, and confess how far we are outwitted and overpowered by our wise and great creator. That not only we cannot undo his work upon us in this respect, but that we cannot so much as understand it. 
what, so mu- what is so much akin in mind and spirit of, of earth, a clod and a thought that they should be thus affixed to one another. I think by those words spoken at a funeral, perhaps over the grave itself, It's reminding us of something we don't think on often enough. The way that our bodies and our souls are connected. And we can, with a thought, raise our arm and lower our arm, as he said. But we can't step out of our bodies. You just can't. Some of us look forward to our sleep when our mind takes us away. Have you flown in your dreams? But you can't take your soul out of your body. Only God can do that. That has implications. That mystery of nature has implications for the way we live. And the Bible understands those metaphysical realities, body and spirit joined together. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's been talking about that. Uh, This this jar of clay from chapter 4 is going to be destroyed and God is yet building uh, a home in heaven something not made with hand, something that's eternal. There's going to be a transition. But we're in the here and now. And you can't depart out of your body. You're here. And so you want to live it properly and effectively. I said John Howe was preaching at a funeral. It was the funeral of a pastor's wife. The pastor was Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan pastor, far more famous than John Howe ever was. Richard Baxter would go on to write 168 books in his lifetime, and he would be famous as a pastor for visiting every household in his town of Kidderminster. Knocking on the door, here comes Pastor Baxter. The Encyclopedia Britannica says he's one of the key influencers of 17th century English Protestantism. He was known as a peacemaker who sought unity among clashing Protestants. And he was at the center of nearly every controversy in England. Yet he was a man who lived with constant pain from age 21 onward. He suffered from tuberculosis. And he only found a wife when he was 50 years old. That's a long time to go solo. And he married a young convert in his congregation that was converted under his ministry, Margaret. And they were just two wonderful ministers on behalf of Christ. They would have no children, but they both gave themselves to the ministry. And and, uh, Baxter would go on to write glowing things of his wife. According to Joel Beakey, Baxter wrote that he never knew her equal in practical divinity, for she was better at resolving a case of conscience than most divines that I ever knew. Consequently, Baxter habitually shared all cases with her except for those that compelled confidentiality. The Baxters, a ministry couple, yet not without pain and difficulty in this life. In fact, when they moved to London, it was 1665, they both survived the Black Plague in the city of London, where 15% of the population perished that one summer. And he was often under persecution. If you know the story of the Puritans, run out of their churches, having legal maneuvers used against them. And once, even when Baxter was sick on his bed, the, the sheriff came and repossessed his bed. And in 1681, his young wife 
the wife he expected to outlive him by decades. She died. And Baxter's alone again, so he asks his friend, John Howe, will you preach on 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8? Would you do that for me, John? And Baxter does. What is verse 8? It says here, Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body. I'd rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. Preach on that verse, John. I'm old, I'm sick, I'm weary, I'm persecuted, and now I'm alone. My friends, the word of God has something for all of us, no matter how difficult our lot. And I threw out a lot about Richard Baxter because he not only had success, but he had hardship. You know, the, the, the most successful and fruitful of Christians are not exempt from the hard things of this world. And we are bound, body and soul, to walk these steps in this way until the Lord comes again or he takes us home and it was his burden I want to be done with this life and be with the Lord I'd rather be there than here and John Howe faithfully preached but he didn't just preach on verse 8 he also preached on verse 9 as he opened up that sermon So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Baxter would go on to live another 10 years. And the word of God was with him. My friends, we don't know how long our life is. We don't know what will come next. We do know that we live in this body the Lord has given us. And he is refining our spirit and our body together. He will complete what is begun in us. And here we have a precious little insight into part of that process. Uh, the broader context of this chapter is about how we walk by faith. And we're leaving a tent and we're going to a mansion. But we're still here. We'd rather be there. What was last Sunday's sermon? I can't wait to move on. Well, this week the sermon is anywhere with Jesus. Or anywhere for Jesus. We can't depart early. We shouldn't. We're here. And the Lord knows we're here. He put us here. And he walks with us here. And he is working in us and through us. It's part of his design. He's preparing the mansion in heaven. And he's with us now as these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Those are the things Paul is saying. And if we want to be Christians and we want to be in this relationship with God, we have to understand how he works. And we have to take him on his terms, not just our terms. Let me summarize with three headings what we find in this second paragraph of the chapter. Pivoting from this phrase, we walk by faith in verse 7 and into verse 8. The first thing we need to point out is that Christians are to be walking by faith. There is an action for us to take. Faith is not simply a mindset It's an action. Hello? We walk by faith. Faith, this isn't a decision. Oh, when I was 16, I I believed in Jesus, or I walked the woodchip trail, or I was at summer camp. I believed, past tense. 
That's not Christianity in its total. We walk by faith. The faith we have is one that's exercised every day in Christ. Christians are those who are walking by faith, not by sight. Didn't we see in in, uh, chapter 4 and verse 18, for instance, that the unseen outweighs the seen? Here's what he said. Verse 17 and 18, this, what, what is perceived? For this light momentary affliction, that's a sweet way of saying my hard life isn't that hard, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. So we walk by faith and not by sight. But we're driven by a media culture that has screens and has messages for us constantly because it wants us to walk by sight. Uh, I I, I would probably, as much as I use my phone or you use your phone, um, you don't need it to walk by faith. We have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the company of God's people. Christians walk by faith. It's an action of your faith. It's not by sight. And it is nevertheless where you'd rather be. Nevertheless. That's one big word. That's not a typo, boys and girls. If you don't know that word, it's an excellent word. It will serve you well. Nevertheless. It kind of means the same as but, but it's stronger. It it grabs two things and says, you're not going to separate these two things. Nevertheless. Because what does he say openly in verse 8, as we mentioned earlier? Paul said, I'd rather be out of here. I'd rather be out of here. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He said something similar in Philippians. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Gain, what does that mean? It's better. For the Christian, it's better. For the unbeliever, it's not going to be better to enter eternity without Christ. We'll get to that later. So we walk not by sight, and we walk regardless of where we'd rather be. Because faith isn't just what you want to be true. Faith is believing what God says is true. So Christian, hear me now. If you're having difficulty, if you're suffering, you're tired of COVID and being alone, you're tired of this or that, you're weary... The Bible says, nevertheless, walk by faith. God knows what our preferences would be, but we're not in charge. We're recipients of the grace of God. Nevertheless. And how can we pull off that nevertheless? Because walking by faith isn't a leap in the dark. Walking by faith is a step into the light. And we know from the Bible that God is at work. How did the chapter begin in verse 1? For we know. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heaven. You win. You get the big house. It's the big showcase. And you, you win. Because of Christ. Faith knows that. So we walk This pilgrim pathway, we walk even through the valley of the shadow of death, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You, my shepherd, are taking me home. 
So we walk by faith. It's an active thing, and it's nevertheless, and it's now. It's now. It's today. Walking by faith doesn't mean you just dreamily think of your mansion in heaven. It's going to be so nice. It's going to be cozy. Pumpkin spice lattes in heaven, for sure. But faith is now. Notice how he words it in verse 8. Whether we are at home or away, I'm trusting God. It's now. We make it our aim to please him. This is the present tense. Walking by faith. I, I, I was impressed by a simple comment in, in just a standard study Bible. The ESV study Bible said here, this truth is not a reference to believing the unbelievable, but to living all of one's life based on confident trust in God's promises for the future, even when one cannot see the fullness of the coming glory. I tell you, I, I see a beautiful autumn day like this, and in a couple weeks when the leaves are a rainbow of color, and you have a beautiful vista before you, you almost, you just want to stop the car and, and drink it in. You have no idea of the glory God has prepared for us to behold. This world is still limited by its creation groaning and its, its taintedness by sin. When we get to the new heavens and the new earth, what glory we will behold, it's indescribable. Our, our imaginations can't get there now. But we walk by faith because we know something of what's coming. So this first word, this first heading is action. We walk by faith. Second, Paul here talks about his aspirations. So do you put that into a verb? We, we aspire he says, we aim to please the Lord, primarily verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please the Lord. A Christian's aspirations are not to grab all the gusto we got or to have, hear me now, have our best life now. Eh, not. That's not what the Bible teaches. Our goal is to please him. To please the one who laid down his life for us. I, I think it was Jesus that said, take up your cross, your own instrument of death, self-denial and death, and follow me. He didn't promise us those mansions here. But he calls us to the way of the cross. Jesus, read his lips. In this world, you will have tribulation. But do not fear, for I have overcome the world. Who do you aim to please? Here, it's interesting, in verse 8, the language is, is, is almost hidden a little bit in the, in the ESV. I had to look at it multiple times in the Greek when it says... Um, we make it our aim to please him. Actually, in verse 8, when it says, we would rather be. That's kind of a plain clause, right? We would rather be. I have a preference. Which one do you want? Well, I'd rather have this one. Behind the language is, is, is the word for well-pleased. 
And, it, and it's an interesting turn of phrase. Paul says, I would rather be, I would be well pleased to be in heaven now. In verse 8, that's what he's saying. Rather be, he's saying, I would be well pleased. But in verse 9, he says, my aim isn't to please myself. My aim is to please the Lord. Derek Prime wrote, our new sense of indebtedness to God and awareness of our Savior's grace produce a gratitude that shows itself in determination to please the Lord. He says, life is simplified because we know that to please him puts everything else in its proper place. That response of gratitude, and we could rephrase that, our walk of faith is about pleasing him, not just finding our next sofa or our comfort station or our next payout. Walking by faith is to please him. Paul is talking about pleasure in verse 8 and verse 9. Like the widower Richard Baxter, he said, I'd rather be out of here. I'd be well pleased. I'd be mighty happy. But my aim is to please him. Verse 9 is essential for verse 8. We aim to please the Lord, Christians. Let me ask, how is God pleased? How do you do that? How do you please God? I'm really thankful that many years ago, it's probably a couple decades ago, R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries uh, had a little tape series back on cassette tapes called Pleasing God. I grabbed it as soon as it was available. Very influential to me. Because isn't that what a Christian needs to know? If you've been a Christian for more than a few months or a year and have never asked that question, shame on you. We are bought with a price. We are not our own. Do you think God just hands you the keys of heaven and says, you're in charge now? We aim to please him. So how is God pleased? That's an important question. If you're a young believer, if you're a teenager, planning your life, make sure to ask that question. How can I please God? I think you'll find the answer in Psalm 1. I think you'll find the answer in Book 1, the Bible. And I think you will find the answer if you look at Christ. Christ is not simply a model how to live, but he is that. And in fact, we know that Christ pleased the Father because God says so. Let me just draw this in. If you're taking notes, I want to point you to Matthew 3, 17. The baptism of Jesus. There was a voice from heaven. And there were only a couple of times in the Bible where an audible voice from heaven was heard. One of those few times was here in Matthew chapter 3. And you probably know by the address that it was at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And they're in the wilderness. And John the Baptist knows who Jesus is. And he says, you should baptize me. And he says, let's do this. And as Jesus came up out of the water, here it is, verse uh, Matthew three seventeen. And behold, a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." 
I was pleased with Adam. But here's the second Adam, and I am well pleased. God made Adam and said that it was good. Jesus steps forward into public ministry, and God says, I am well pleased. The exact same construction as we find when Paul's writing to those Corinthians. I'd be well pleased to be in heaven, but I make it my aim to please him. And how do we do that? We look to Christ. There's another audible voice in Matthew 17 and verse 5. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. Just a few disciples with Jesus there and Moses and Elijah appear. And as they're meeting, a voice from heaven says, listen to him. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. How is God pleased? By our faith? By our obedience? And you can see your obedience and your faith by your fruitfulness? Every true believer bears some fruit. 30, 60, or 100 fold, you bear some fruit. If you think you're a Christian and you bear no fruit, you're not a Christian. Christians always have evidence of that new life at work within them in some fashion. If the Holy Spirit is present, there are going to be fruits of the Spirit. I don't want to go off on that tangent, but we need to point that out. How is God pleased? He's pleased by a Spirit-filled, obedient life. In a heart of love and not doubting. Whoever wrote Hebrews wrote this at the start of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, laid aside, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Kind of sounds like Paul in 2 Corinthians. I'm in a marathon. I've got to run this race. I can't take my spirit out of my body. I'm one. I've got to keep going until I reach my heavenly mansion. But Hebrews 12 continues, verse 2, running the race, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You're following that, Jesus? You're following his model? You're looking at him who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He shows you what the Christian life looks like. He makes us born again, and then he shows us the way we live. So let me ask, third, what is your ambition? What is your ambition? It had better be to please God. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. They were a church that were being, uh, trying to be misled by some false teachers. Paul has to go head-to-head with these super apostles. He's combating them. But he asks this question that I'm sure must have rattled the Corinthians and hopefully it rattles the Clifton Parkers. Those here in the Capital District. What is your ambition? Whom do you seek to please? Yourself? And your prayers revolve around getting God to make your life more comfortable? Or do we pray something like, Thy will be done. We can ask, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. But thy will be done. I will do what pleases God. Will you do what pleases God? If you're a Christian, will you do what pleases God? Will you make it your aim to do what pleases God? Will you 
walk from this place, having heard the word of God, and say, I step into this world to do what pleases God. That doesn't sit well with a hedonistic culture that we live in. I enjoy the comforts of modern life. But all things must be subservient as we live to please God. David had that ambition, didn't he? David loved the Lord. He gave us so many of our psalms. We've been studying psalms in our adult Sunday school class, so join us if you can. Psalm 16, David says this. It's a psalm of David, beginning in verse 9. Wherefore, and the whole verse is in a happy psalm, but he says, Wherefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, says David of God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's life had a lot of difficulties. But with a nevertheless attitude, he walked by faith and found joy in God. It was his ambition to please God. The final heading this morning is, is, is looking at verse 10 of our text. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. And it might catch you somewhat off guard because it's going to talk about future judgment. And verse 10 begins with this little word for, and it's pointing to a reason for what comes before it. So he says, we make it our aim to please him. One of the reasons we aim to please him is in verse 10. If you're having a hard time weaning yourself off self-love, to have more love for Jesus, to please him more than you please yourself, verse 10 is there to help us. Verse 10 is about judgment. Let's see what it says again. Begins with the word for we, even Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're going to have to stand and give account. The first word we used to summarize the first point was action, walk by faith. Second was aspire, who do you please? This one, the word is accountable. We will all face the judgment of God. We will stand before God. And he'll look us over. And you can't be surprised at that. How many times does the Bible tell us it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment? How many parables of Jesus, the teacher supreme, right? Jesus, he had parables about uh, a king went to a far place and then he came back or the master went away and then he comes back and he holds his servants to account. Let me see your talents. What have you done? Or as Jesus taught plainly on the Olivet Discourse about his return, he said, I will separate the sheep from the goats and some will be unhappy. They'll say, hey, didn't we do a lot of stuff for you? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Friends, are you ready to be held to account? A pop quiz, oh, far more than that. It's your final exam. 
Are you preparing? It's one of the ways in which God helps us focus our faith on him. I need to please him because I'm going to give account to him. He will give me all I need to live a life that is godly. Peter reminds us of that. We have all we need. Are we actively doing it? This phrase, judgment seat, was not just some metaphor for Paul. Paul had been locked up. Paul had 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 rough, rusty iron fetters on his hands and on his ankle. He'd had a Roman guard hidden. He'd gone hungry while he was incarcerated, seen the the feces on the floor and all those things that a jail or a prison might bring to mind. And he was there because he had appeared before a judgment seat. When Paul was in Corinth, actually, we know this from uh, Acts chapter 18, he stood before Gallio, the proconsul. He stood before a judgment seat. When you're standing before the judgment seat, that person is usually elevated. They're in a comfortable seat and they have power over you. And the words that come out of their mouth will affect where you go, left or right, in or out, live or die. Paul had seen judgment seats. He had spoken before kings and pleaded to go to Rome to make his appeal to Caesar. There's a judgment seat. This is no mere metaphor for Paul. Our Lord Jesus stood before a judgment seat. We're seeing some of that as we read through the Gospel of Mark in the morning. Prayer meetings were going through the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus stood before Caiaphas falsely accused, they spat on him, they struck him, and he's brought before Pilate for judgment. Of course, Jesus tried to remind them, in a little bit you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, I'll be seated on the throne and you'll give account to me the great reversal that they couldn't see coming. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, Paul writes to us, One motive to keep us pleasing God and keep us focused, not just on selfish living, is that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ, our Savior, will sit on that seat. Now what are we talking about? We're only going to be saved if God sees our good works? No, that's a work salvation. We will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will be owned by Jesus Christ. He will, as it were, also stand with us as our advocate. He will plead for us. Here I am, Father, and those that you gave me, not one is lost. The works of Christ will win our salvation. Amen. By his stripes we are healed. Because of his righteousness, we're saved and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But we will still give an account. There will still be commendations. There will still be rewards. We should long to hear what Jesus said. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because he might say, eh, I'm a little disappointed. That's what's implied when it talks about rewards It talks about judgment for believers, giving an account. Those who teach will be held to a higher account. Don't think that doesn't keep pastors up at night. 
People here sometimes hear me misspeak in the pulpit and they'll catch me out. That's fine. But oh, what will Jesus say about my preaching? What will Jesus say about your listening? What will Jesus say about our lives? Are we walking fruitfully? If we're walking by faith, there will be fruit. I made that point already. If we're going to face judgment, we need to understand what we do now matters for eternity. How are we using our time? How are we using our opportunities? The most important time, let me remind you, here or at home, number one, worship God. Hallow the name of God. Live for the Lord. Praise Him. That means get to worship when you can gather. Let us not forsake the gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's get together and encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10 talks about getting to church, being with God's people, as we see the day approaching. What day? Oh, you know what day. What you do now matters for eternity. How will you be prepared? Know the word. Sit under the preaching of the word. Be in the company of believers. Strive for godliness. Spur one another on. Bear one another's burdens. Exercise your spiritual gift and receive the benefit of others and their spiritual gift. What we do now together matters for eternity. And aim to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Will you hear that? Will I hear that? Jesus said it twice in that parable found in Matthew 25. Well, in conclusion, let me make three points, three exhortations, three applications, three pleadings. There's been a lot going on this morning in this text, but don't give up yet. Let's listen. Number one, do not despise or hate this life. The first application, the first exhortation is is a little bit negative. It's saying what not to do. Don't hate this life. Don't despise this life. Don't let your groaning turn into murmuring. That was a previous sermon. And don't be impatient with Christ. He's your Lord. He's your master. I am praying for the last two weeks, almost three weeks now. I've been praying for someone in such a difficult case. And God is is hearing and helping, but it's still happening. And it's for the perfection of my faith and the, the, the faith of this brother and for God's work in the world, as mysterious as it is. I'd rather not be dealing with this. But nevertheless, I walk by faith and do what I can. I pray, I read the scriptures, I exhort, I bear with. Don't despise or hate this life. And don't be impatient with Christ. That's what Peter eventually learned. (laughs) Yes, yes, I can hear your incredulity. Impestuous Peter. What else can we say about Peter? Uh, Foot in the mouth Peter. Peter who says, no, no, Jesus, we're not going to do that. That Peter. He matured. The Spirit worked in him. He would write this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord, says Peter, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter defends the Lord's timing, says, wait for it. Paul in Philippians uh, 
said this in chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, nevertheless, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul is consistent in what he writes. Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Amen. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh, Paul writes in Philippians 1, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. God has his purposes. So Paul has his nevertheless moments as I'm here and I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to believe that God's at work. Do not despair. Second exhortation, life is simplified when you live to please God. You heard that quote earlier. I can't remember if it was Derek Prime or who it was. Life is simplified when you live to please God. Sometimes we have a lot of options on how to please ourselves. Or we don't do something because that doesn't sound too pleasant. That would be a little uncomfortable. I'm really busy. I don't know if I have time for that. When you say, I don't know if I have time for that, you're saying what your time is valuable. And it could be an expression of seeking pleasure for yourself. Just thinking. But life is simplified when you live to please God. Do you remember Solomon? uh, Wisest man that ever lived. And the book of Proverbs, to which he contributed a lot. And then there's that kind of cryptic book, Ecclesiastes. It's good to read it, those 12 chapters. Read it. Uh, What does that wise man say? What does that preacher say when he gets to the end of his book? Do you know his conclusion? He says in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the end of the matter. Live to please God. It simplifies so much. Laurel and I early on taught our children how to answer that question. You know, when the little visitor leans over to the toddler and says, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, or what do you want to be, little girl, when you grow up? So we just taught them the the best of all answers because the way it's worded it's not what do you want to do when you grow up it's what do you want to be when you grow up you remember the answer i want to be a godly man we made our toddlers memorize that i want to be a godly woman and hopefully it 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 fit as their christian worldview developed as the lord was at work in their young lives we hope that was their genuine aspiration Life is simplified when you understand you're not your own. He is Lord. Live to please him. And thirdly, remember, know that what you do now matters for eternity. You may have a day off. You may have a free hour. You may have options. But whatever you do now matters for eternity. And I give the last word to Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, says Jesus, 
where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have understood so much this morning what it means to walk by faith, what it means to deny ourselves. Nevertheless, we have our preferences, but we want to make you our number one pleasure and joy. Father, help us in these things. Help us to simplify in the chaotic world in which we live. And maybe we've made our own life chaotic. Father, may we simplify. May we focus. May you help. Oh, Father, as you help me and my friends here and all who look to your word, may we be more fruitful. May you get more glory. May you begin to change this world and may your kingdom come in its fullness, even here and now. We commit ourselves to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.